Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Gard. It is a custom among Jewish communities for a weekly Torah portion to be read during Jewish prayer services on Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. The full name, Parashat Tashavua, is properly abbreviated uh, to parasha and is sometimes known as sidra or sedra. The parasha is a section of the Torah, the five books of Moses, also known as the Chumash, that is used in Jewish liturgy during a particular week. There are 54 parashiot, that's the plural in Hebrew, and a full cycle is read over the course of one Jewish calendar year. Each Torah portion consists of two to six chapters to be read during the week. This week, our Torah portion is known as Kitavot. It is one of the last Torah portions in the book of Deuteronomy, beginning in Deuteronomy 26 and continuing through Deuteronomy 29.8. Let me give you a brief overview of the parasha before I introduce our guest to speak of it. In this week's parasha, Moses instructs the people of Israel, when you enter the land that God is giving you as your eternal heritage, you shall settle it and cultivate it. Bring the first ripened fruits, known as the bikurim of your orchard, to the holy temple, and declare your gratitude for all that God has done for you. Our parasha also includes the law of the tithes given to the Levites and to the poor, and detailed instructions on how to proclaim the blessings and curses on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, as discussed in the beginning of the portion of Re'eh. Moses reminds the people, once again, that they are God's chosen people and that they, in turn, have chosen God. The latter part of Kitabo is certainly well known. It consists of what's called in Hebrew the tochacha, the rebuke. After listing the blessings with which God will reward the people when they follow the laws of the Torah, Moses gives a long, harsh account of bad things, illness, famine, poverty, and exile that be, shall befall the people of Israel if they abandon God's commandments. Moses concludes this week's parasha by telling the people that only today, 40 years after their birth as a people, have they attained, and I quote from the Torah, a heart to know, eyes to see, and ears to hear. As you can tell from that brief overview, this is a Torah portion filled with numerous insight and numerous uh, opportunities for commentary. 
My guest this morning is Rabbi Eric Wisnia, who was the senior rabbi at Congregation Bet Chaim in West Windsor, New Jersey, for over 42 years. Rabbi Wisnia joined Congregation Bet Chaim in 1977 and led it from a fledgling congregation of just a few families to over a thousand families. He was, during his time in the rabbinate, active rabbinate, and continues today to be a powerful voice for religious liberty. He uh, states often, we all are brothers and sisters, and when any of our rights are diminished, all of our rights are diminished. He served as president for the Windsor Hightown High Area Ministerium, where the community's interfaith clergy met to discuss community issues such as the feeding the homeless at the Trenton area soup kitchen and home front, and participating in the hunger walk with World Church Service. His many affiliations include serving on the Institutional Review Board for Medical Ethics at the Medical Center at Princeton University, chairman of the Committee on Religious Ministries at the same medical center for many years, and was chairman of the board of directors of the Family Service Agency of Princeton, New Jersey. It is a pleasure to once again welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Eric Wisnia. Rabbi Wisnia, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi. It is a pleasure and an honor once again to be with you and your listening audience. Well, I think it's pretty clear that our listeners enjoy learning with you. And so let's begin today with um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. And I'm going to read it for our listeners who may not uh, have a copy of the Torah right in front of them. So, you shall recite as follows before the Lord your God. My father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a great and populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. The Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and awesome power and signs and portents. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore, I now bring the first fruits of the soil, which you, O Lord, have given me. Well, for anyone who remembers the Passover Seder, this should resonate because these words are part of the Passover uh, Seder. So, Rabbi, how do we move from this quote in Deuteronomy to Passover, and how does it help us understand the rest of the parashah? 
Um, a good question, and I see this uh, in your introduction, Rabbi. You said there are so many topics in this parasha, Kitavo, and you're right. It's filled with different topics because Moses, at this point in Torah, is an old man, is ready to give up uh, leadership to Joshua and to go up onto Mount Nebo and die. And so he starts in Deuteronomy giving a, a recitation of Jewish history. And he talks about the history of our journeys from Egypt to Canaan. And within that history lesson, he gives what I believe right here is an attempt to define exactly who is a Jew. I see this paragraph as a definition because we're told on the holiday of Shavuot, remember we have three foot festivals when we will be commanded to go by foot to the temple in Jerusalem and make our sacrifices. One of them is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after Passover. In fact, my Gentile friends call it Pentecost. Every adult male in the nation of Israel had to travel by foot to Jerusalem for Shavuot, Pentecost. And there they had to make a sacrifice of the first fruits of their fields. And as they made this sacrifice and were walking up the temple steps, you read for us in Deuteronomy 26, my father was a wandering Aramean. That definition. Now, why do I see that as a definition and why is it so important? It's because we Jews see ourselves as a people and not just a religion. I have a lot of questions uh, from my Gentile friends who don't understand exactly what is Judaism. Is it a religion? Is it a culture? Is people. Do you get that as well, or is that just something I'm dealt with? No, I think all of us who work in um, communities where the Jewish population is not the majority often are asked questions about the um, essence of what it, what it means to be Jewish. Uh, and I think you're right that for many people, it is confusing. Um, Christianity certainly sees itself as a religion of which there are some uh, ethnic communities that associate their ethnic origins with a particular faith. Um, and there are certainly some faith communities that have nothing to do with ethnicity and Judaism, as you suggested, seems to uh, intertwine both. Um, as you continue, I'm just wondering if you could help our listeners understand this word Aramean. What does that refer to? Good. Aram is the area in Syria um, and uh, southern Turkey directly north of Canaan, Canaan, Israel, and that's where Abraham came from. Abraham came from Ur, the city, um, which was one of the major cities of the Babylonian Empire, and that section of Babylonia was known as Aram, 
And so Abraham was the wandering Aramean. He wandered around. He left, as we find in Genesis chapter 12. Lech Lecha, get out of Babylonia. It's not good for you, Abe. And so he wandered around. He's the wandering Aramean who ended up going down two generations later with Isaac uh, and Jacob. Jacob brings his sons down to Egypt with Joseph. And it's there that we dwelt in Egypt. And there arose a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph and didn't want to remember how good Joseph was for Egypt. And he is the one who put taskmasters over us and made us slaves in Egypt. And in Passover, we read the story of how God brought us out of Egypt. God redeemed us and brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm not sure that God meant New Jersey or Canada or the U.S., but that'll do. It's pretty good. But we were brought and redeemed from slavery. And now the Torah tells us, since we are in Israel and blessed with a good life, put some of your food in a basket, bring it to the temple in Jerusalem, donate it to those who are poor and needy, and say, thank you, God, for giving me blessings. And I believe that in this paragraph, we are defining who is a Jew, because this is what a Jew said as they went to Jerusalem. If you could identify with this paragraph, if you could identify with the fact that, yes, my ancestors were slaves in Egypt. My ancestors were redeemed. My ancestors were given a good life. And I better appreciate it. It then becomes much more than simply a holiday. This is an affirmation of who we are. In fact, I believe this is true with all of our rituals, uh, Rabbi. I believe that every ritual we observe is a cultural marker to teach us something about our identity. So in this case, um, the Torah portion is speaking about Bikurim, first fruits, which is a hint to, as you called it, the Rigalim, the foot festivals. But perhaps you can spend a bit more time on what you allude to, is that culture uh, is our Jewish religion. And I want to ask one supplementary question for you to consider, and that is, um, if we are to remember that our ancestors were wandering Arameans, then how important is institutional memory for the survival of the Jewish people? Totally, actually. Totally. We are a people. We are not individuals. One of the major differences, I believe, between Christianity and Judaism is that Christianity is an individual religion of personal faith. Judaism is not. Judaism is a religion of peoplehood and commitment to that peoplehood. Our religion comes from that peoplehood. It is the cultural milieu in which we live. You know, I suppose what I'm telling you is that the culture makes us who we are. For instance, what makes me an American? Well, I live in America and I speak English. Now, I could speak any language. They're all just as good. You know, Babylonian, I'm sure, was very good for the Babylonians. 
And in Italy, they speak a language which I don't understand, but they seem to make a nice life for themselves and happy. I'm happy to speak my language, English, but that limits me to a certain group. It defines me in a certain culture so that my culture has certain values and our religion is all tied up in our culture. Each ritual that we do has some implication for morality and that's what makes us Jewish. It's a very complicated um, uh, formula that we're speaking about history, culture, rituals, morality, which um, require the individual uh, who calls themselves Jewish to have some sort of framing for all of these varieties of issues, namely um, to make uh, Passover or to make any of the holidays meaningful to the fullest extent, there has to be some framing. Um, to simply participate in a Seder or to build a sukkah without understanding its essential meaning um, diminishes the power that it has to connect the individual to the peoplehood. Um, how do you respond to that notion of framing? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. The notion of... Well, framing the behavior in such a way that you totally understand its power. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's um, a very good way to put it. Let's talk about Passover. Um, you know, my people were, were African slaves. They were slaves in Africa for 400 years. Now, the question is, uh, I'm told to remember that. Why? Not to take revenge on the Egyptians, not to do unto them before they do unto me, but to remember that my people suffered and didn't like slavery. And therefore, I should have a celebration every year of Passover to say, I will see to it that no one is ever a slave again. From my history, I learned slavery is bad. Therefore, it is one of my ethical precepts that all people should be slaves, should be no slaves and no one should enslave anyone. I look at my history, and I learn something moral from it. That's why we have our rituals. It's not that God just wants us to sit down and have dinner once a year and drink four cups of wine. It is that we learn from our past, and we learn something moral. So that for Jews, the emphasis is not on belief, it is on action. All of our rituals teach us some moral action. The way we show our belief in God is to do what God wants, to be good, to be moral. Well, then I want to push you on this for some uh, of our listeners, and that is you and I both know as rabbis, having served in the Jewish community for nearly 50 years, that there are many Jews who claim the title Jew and um, say that they want nothing to do with ritual, that they're only a uh, cultural Jew or that they're only an ethical Jew, do those 
uh, definitions um, have any real meaning with regard to um, the traditional understanding of what it means to be a Jew, or does it have any meaning um, with regard to the survival of the Jewish people? Um, to a, to a, to some extent, no. You know, if I um, let let's talk about fasting on Yom Kippur. You know, if I uh, if I fast on Yom Kippur, and uh, then I go out and cheat in my business, kick my wife, be nasty to my children, and, uh, you know, subvert my nation, <laughs> I, I don't think that my fasting was very worthwhile. On the other hand, if I'm sick and the doctor says, well, you better drink something and take some aspirin on Yom Kippur, and I do that, and I feel bad because I'm fasting because I, I want to be better than I was last year. I want to remember my sins and say, no, I'm not going to do that again. Then even if I didn't fast perfectly, my attempted fast was better because I learned some morality from it. The point of all our rituals is not to do some silly rigmarole that God wants us to do. A good example was brought home to me about wearing a yarmulke. One of my friends walked into a synagogue and said, oh, I have to put on a kippah, a yarmulke. And I said, you do? He said, yes, I have to. I said, okay. I said, what does that mean to you? He said, nothing. It just means when I walk into a synagogue, I put on the head covering. I said, why? He said, because I'm supposed to. And I said to him, I find that terrible Judaism. The point of covering your head is to say, I go up to here and I stop. There's something above me. There's a higher authority. There's a moral authority more than just my will. By wearing a kippah when I walk into a synagogue, wearing a yarmulke, and kippah is the Hebrew word for yarmulke, you're showing that there's a higher authority. There's something above me, a morality more than my will. Then it becomes a religious act. If you put on a kippah because you're afraid, or you have to, my Gentile friends walk into synagogue and put on a yarmulke. It doesn't make them a Jew. So... Your, I want to um, ex express this notion of framing in Jewish language. You seem to be uh, reminding our listeners that in Jewish tradition, we have a concept of kavanah, of internal direction, and that behaviors without internal direction, without intentionality, become less meaningful. Now, some would even say meaningless. So your friend who puts on a head covering when he walks in a synagogue, um, but has no real intention other than to ape a tradition or to uh, copy something he's heard, um, it will have no impact upon him. Uh, as you indicate that um, uh, non-Jews who go into the synagogue and who put on uh, a head covering may do so out of respect for what they understand is our tradition. Um, so we Jews have a sense of kavanah, of internal intentionality. Um, do you think that our Torah portion is alluding to this when it ends by talking about the tochacha? about the rebukes? Sure. I think it is. I think, you know, most telling us 
you know, if you go through the motions, it's not going to be religious. In, in fact, even in the in the, uh, the instance that I gave where the Gentile puts on a yarmulke because he has respect for Jews, I would find that more meaningful because he's showing his respect. He has a reason for putting on the yarmulke. The Jew just puts it on his head because he's supposed to. Is is mocking us? It's like going through the motions, but not having a meaning. Now, if you ask me, well, is it okay to go through the motions? I would say it's a good place to start, but you have to move from going through the motions to finding meaning in the motions. And religion is really the meaning behind the ritual. It's wonderful to be a member of the Jewish people, but unless you learn from that, that you are blessed and that you appreciate the blessing and then want to share it with others, then there's no real benefit to being a Jew. On Pesach, we're not just commanded to retell the story of our exodus from Egypt, but we're commanded to learn from it and abolish slavery and oppression wherever they exist. We show that we value our good luck by sharing it with others. We show that we value our religion by making the world a better place for everybody. So as you've spoken, what strikes me is that you have identified one of the major differences between rabbis and other clergy. The role of rabbis is to make meaning and not to simply be facilitators of ritual behavior. Though, of course, um, you and other rabbis in the modern synagogue will be ritual leaders, um, but your primary responsibility is to help your congregants find meaning in the ritual, not simply the uh, ongoing uh, rote repetition of it. Though, of course, some would claim that without rote repetition, there is no attempt at finding meaning, and that is a tension that exists perhaps in all traditions. But the rabbinic role that you play was primarily directed toward helping your congregants, your learners, find ultimate meaning. And so I said, Yes, that's what you're saying the Torah portion is about. How does one find meaning in the title Jew or Israelite? Well, you're right. I mean, if one just says, as I've heard some people do, well, I'm Jewish, therefore I'm special because I'm one of the chosen people. Um, you know, I've, my colleagues have taught me that unless you choose to be chosen, unless you choose to do something to make the world better, then just being born Jewish doesn't give you much of much class, you know. Uh, there's no point to it. The to it's like those people who say to me, "Well, I believe in God," but then they go out and be bad and break every one of God's commandments. I don't know what they mean when they say they believe in God. When you go out and you observe God's commandments, I don't care whether you think you believe in God or not. What do you, whether you think there's a little man or woman sitting up in heaven is not really the issue. The issue for us is in the meaning, in doing good. So I very often try and tell people to stop worrying about G-O-D and add an O in the middle and worry about doing G-O-O-D. 
Well, let's leave it there for this week. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Eric Wisnia, the Rabbi Emeritus at Congregation Beit Chaim in West Windsor, New Jersey. I want to thank him for his great insight about the Torah portion, Kitavo. You can find a recording of our show on uh, iTunes, on the chri.ca website, and on uh, YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.